uh, exercise. I don't think it'll be too troublesome for us. Um, but Grand Rounds today, uh, we continue our series. Next week, we will have an important update on the, the state of the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock with a focus on one of our top priorities for 2015-2016, our culture of safety work. So hopefully you'll join me and Sam and, and Johanna Bellavo and I don't think we have a cast of thousands uh, prepared for next week. The following week, September 30th, uh, the Chief of Inpatient Pediatrics, Alan Schroeder from Santa Clara Valley Medical Center will uh, talk about safely doing less. Today, our code is 92DI, text to 603-346-4334 to gain your attendance credit and CME credits or CNE, continuing education credits for the session. But we're lucky and, and pleased to welcome Dr. Alan Budney this morning to speak on uh, the changing landscape of cannabis, what's real and what's not. Dr. Budney is a professor of uh, psychology in the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth, having received his PhD in clinical psychology from Rutgers University. He was a postdoctoral fellow and faculty member at the University of Vermont until 2005 when he went south to the University of Arkansas, uh, the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, until returning back to Northern New England in 2012. In the past 20 years, he's conducted extensive research on the development and evaluation of innovative behavioral treatments for substance abuse, specializing in cannabis use disorders in adults and adolescents, with his clinical research focusing on integrating abstinence-based counseling, contingency management and interventions with more traditional therapies, and using some computer-assisted therapies to enhance the cost-effectiveness of these approaches. He's done human laboratory and survey studies. He's a fellow and past president of the Division of Division 28 of the American Psychological Association and President-elect of Division 50, which is focused on addictions. He was a member of the Substance Use Disorders Working Group for the Development of DSM-5 and currently serves on the Board of Directors for the College on Problems of Drug De Dependence. He serves on numerous boards, including study sections at the NIH and um, participated regularly with the Office of National Drug Control Policy on their Marijuana and Kids media campaign. He's very active. Uh, with his uh, wife, Kathy Sanger, who has presented at our Grand Rounds. Much of his work has been collaborative with her, and she's been a, uh, a member of our, our Grand Rounds in our community already. Interestingly, on uh, the website, uh, Dr. Budney is reported to be an avid sports fan and enjoys the theater. He will play golf with anyone, so there's a challenge. And he also offers a barbecue for anyone who'd like to stop by his home in Hanover, New Hampshire. So. With those introductions and invitation, thanks, Dr. Budney. Well, thank, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, with that said, I think we could skip all this, play golf, and eat barbecue. <laughs> I, I always forget that's on the website somewhere. I, you, you put out I, the invitation. I'm glad you dug it up. All right. So we all set to go here. Um, yeah, we're all set to go. So I'm going to talk to you about marijuana today, cannabis. Um, I'm not going to talk a lot about my own research. I'm going to try to give you an overview of some, I think, the important things that are going on in the cannabis world, because that's basically what I was asked to do, and I think probably most relevant to what most of you folks do. Um, on the way over, I was wondering, you know, I don't have the answer to this, but why are we so obsessed with marijuana and cannabis in this country and others? This isn't a new thing. It's not like this cannabis legalization movement is new. This has been going on for over 100 years, and we keep going back and forth on what to do about it in the United States in particular, but other countries as well. 
Um, now it looks like we're really going to have to do something about it because we actually have laws that say cannabis is legal. So it's, a, it's an interesting time in the cannabis world. So I'm hoping that what I have to say is of some value. Um, it's hard to decide what to present. There's so much going on in so many areas that I think are relevant. I tried to do a good job of putting together stuff, but it's way too much. So I'm going to go pretty quickly because I'd like to leave um, some time for questions because usually there's lots of questions about marijuana and I'll, have, I'll provoke more questions than give you answers, I'm sure. All right, so that said, disclosures, um, I've been funded by the NAIs for a long time. Other than that, um, nothing to really mention. If you're interested in copies of the slides or articles, et cetera, um, just email me. I'm happy to send you whatever you need. Um, so don't worry about taking notes or anything like that. Um, this is Grand Rounds. So we're supposed to have some learning objectives. This is what I hope to sort of accomplish today, one way or another. Um, mostly, I'd like to hopefully provoke some hard thinking on your part as well as some guidance on where to go to get some of the answers that we can't get to today, at least get the answers as best as we, as we know in the, in the clinical science world. All right, it's 8 o'clock in the morning. Let's I got some questions for you. Now, you can choose to raise your hand if the answer is yes, or you can just think. Do you think cannabis has addictive potential? These are going to go quick. Cannabis withdrawal is clinically important, or is there cannabis withdrawal? Quitting cannabis is relatively easy. Ah, all right. Cannabis adversely impacts learning. Cannabis adversely impacts motivation. Impacts decision making. Man, you all don't think it's so good. Has benefit for ADHD, PTSD, and anxiety. Okay, a few people. Has benefit for epilepsy. Therapeutic benefit for pain. Increases risk of psychosis. All right. Got some more for you. I actually have a list of about 200 of these, but we're, we're not, we're not going to go to that many. One more. I think there's, this is the last sheet. Vaping is a safe way to use cannabis. Eating is a safe way to use cannabis. <laughs> a couple. Cannabis is as dangerous as alcohol. We should legalize cannabis as a medical marijuana type legalization. What about as a recreational type legalization? Not many yeses. This is a pediatric audience. <laughs> All right, 18-year-olds should be able to use cannabis if it were legalized. <laughs> All right, that's hopefully just gets you. Th those are all the kind of things that you have to, that you're, you wonder about, that people are discussing out there, that there's debates about, etc. And the answer to those questions aren't black and white, that's for sure. Or we'll touch on a bunch of those today and not others, but hopefully by the end you'll know where to get information to try to give you more information about how to think about those things. All right, so what's going on out there? There's this new form of reefer madness, I like to call it, where there's just an explosion of different cannabis products um, and different ways to smoke cannabis, etc. What I've got here for you is pretty, pretty um, straightforward. Here on the... Um, where is that? Looks like there it is. Well, 
There we go. Boy, challenge ready. Um, these are kind of the more traditional ways to smoke marijuana everybody's aware of. This is a joint. This is a blunt where you hollow out a cigar and put some cannabis in it. This is just some packaged cannabis. These are some of the newer things. Here, this is taking some, making um, cannabis into a liquid and putting it in an e-cig device. This is, I think, honey oil, which is a butane prepared kind of very concentrated form of cannabis or THC. This is what's called shatter or glass, a new high potency type thing that people are smoking or vaping. Um, these are these are labels or yeah, basically product um, packaging for synthetic marijuana. So different types of synthetic marijuana you can get over the internet, etc. We also have all kinds of new ways to eat marijuana. You always heard about hash brownies and marijuana brownies. They're in our culture. They've been around forever. But now there's pre-made products, all kinds. There's um, sodas and candy bars and dark chocolate and light chocolate and honey-filled chocolate and salted caramels. And you know anything you can think of, they're now packaging THC in in places where you can purchase cannabis um, because of the legalization movement. New ways to use marijuana, primarily we're talking about vaporizing, or vape, and these are different forms of vaporizers. We have pens that are relatively cheap, kind of comparable sort of to e-cigs. Um, this is the Cadillac um, Volcano, which costs a lot of money. It's a device that sits on your table, etc. These are some other types of portable devices that um, are becoming more common. There's a wide range of these devices. Some of them are more efficient. Some of them are cheaper. Some are more expensive. Some of them you can adjust. Um, there's a lot of technology. So if you know about e-cigs, the same type of technology is going on in making these devices um, useful for, for um, vaporizing cannabis. Then there's a whole market developing out there. So when there's things, products are legal, we like to sell them or somebody likes to sell them and make a profit. You got to figure out how to sell them. And so this is all the kind of thing that's going on. There's dispensary and here's how the product's displayed in the dispensary. And there's advertisements that show up in the newspaper. There's people on the sidewalks waving you into cannabis dispensaries in some of these states. If you go to a state, Colorado or Washington, et cetera, and you go to a hot zone, it's unbelievable what you see sometimes in terms of ways to try to get people into the shops, et cetera. Marlboro Greens down here, they don't exist. I think Dustin, my postdoc, he's back there. I think he, he dug that up from somewhere, but I, I think Marlboro Greens will exist relatively soon. And last, the market, I, there's just more market on the internet. You can pre-order things and go pick them up, and these are the name of some products. And I was gonna ask you, and I forgot, how many people waked and baked this morning before they came in. Um, but anyway, there's, there's cookbooks out there on how to, how to make um, nice THC-laced treats. All right, so this is about, this talk is to somewhat about trying to figure out what's real and what's not real. And the first little piece of information in that regard comes from a study that uh, my ex-graduate student, Ryan Vandre, who's now a prophet, um, Johns Hopkins, he did this little study where he went out to um, San Francisco, LA, and Seattle, and he had somebody who had state approval to have to um, purchase cannabis go ahead and buy products in the different dispensaries across these states. He had them buy 75 products. And the idea was to test to see if what's, what was labeled, how much THC they had in them, was actually accurate. So they purchased them and took them back to their own labs to find out what was in the products. And this is what they found. Um, 75 products, if you look at the um, 
the top row, you see the number of products and the percent that were accurate. And accurate in this case is defined as within 10% of the labeled amount of THC. And about 17% were accurate. Um, how, much were, how many were under-labeled? In other words, there was more THC in it than the label, 23%, and about 60% were over-labeled. They said there was more THC in it than there actually was. And if you see it, the, um, you go down, you see more of the data, but the discrepancies in general, if you say over-labeled by how much, how much was on average about 50 um, milligrams of THC. To put that into perspective, even though some of them had 300 milligrams, the, the um, the dose that's prescribed of oral THC, marinol or dronabinol for the, uh, the couple of indications that it's available for is like 2.5 or 5 milligrams. So a discrepancy of 50 milligrams is 10 times the therapeutic dose of THC in the, in the medical world. So that said, you can see the products that are out there in the dispensaries are not well labeled. They're not very accurate. You could make what you want of that, but obviously we have some work to do there. All right. Cannabis current marijuana laws. A lot of times I start talks and I say the one thing I'm not going to talk about is medical marijuana because it always raises all kinds. But now it's gotten to the point where that's what it's all about. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And to some degree, what's real and unreal, really what's kind of unreal about this is the laws themselves and how diverse they are. There's 24 states now plus some District of Columbia that have some type of medical marijuana law. Um, at least three states have pending legislation. Five states have some form of really recreational use legalized. And the federal status is still illegal. Now here's the chaos, and here what's, is what's kind of unreal about the laws, if you're not aware of it. They differ dramatically across, across states. And I'm not going to take time to go through all of this, but how much you have to pay to get an approval varies. Reciprocity with other states is kind of rare. Only six states have reciprocity for approvals. A couple states don't allow any form of cannabis smoking. So you can have medical marijuana, but you can't smoke it. So you have to do it some other way. Um, but that's only two states. That might sound like a good thing, but not so clear. Um, allow dispensaries. Some states have laws, but don't have dispensaries. So it's not clear how you're supposed to get it other than to grow your, your medicine. The possession limits in the different states vary dramatically. Some state how many ounces you can have. And it varies between 1 and 24 ounces, which is kind of crazy. And some just state how many days supply you can have. But days supply depends on how much you're supposed to be taking. And there's absolutely no information on how much you're supposed to be taking. And the approvals you get aren't, aren't prescriptions that docs write. They're just approvals that say you have a condition. So it's not clear how they would come up with that. Um, so you can see it's kind of crazy. And there's never any mention of potency, I think, in any of the states. So if you have one ounce of 30% THC versus 10 ounces of 5% THC, you can see there's a dramatic difference in terms of these possession laws. And the possession laws are kind of important because, you know, there's penalties if you violate the laws. So kind of crazy. Here I just threw up all the different conditions across states that people can get approved um, to uh, be approved to have marijuana for cannabis. Um, I'm not going to go through them. It's everything you can think of. I highlighted the one. Um, this is the only psychological disorder that there's an approval for, and it's only one or two states, I think, PTSD. Um, now, how do you figure out what's real and not real? What's the data for these disorders and for to use cannabis as, quote, medicine? All right. This is the one that sticks in my craw. I do not like medical marijuana. That's my bias. I think that the way we're doing it is insane. But that said, 
This is probably the most recent and the newest article and the best way to get a handle on this if you're interested. We don't have time to really go through it, but Marcel Bond Miller has been investigating cannabis and its effects and is interested in the medical marijuana. He's, he's good. And this is a narrative review. So they take what they've done is they take the 80% of the um, conditions that are most common across the states. They took those, or states, they took conditions that at least 80% of the states had approvals for. So it's the common ones. And they do a narrative review. They go through the data um, in paragraph form and tell you what we know and what we don't know and what types of studies have been done and what's really been tested versus not tested. So it does a really good job, I think, of helping you figure this all out. Um, the conclusion is very clear anytime you review this data is that to think of this as medicine the way I think most people in this room think of medicine, the majority of these conditions, there's insufficient evidence to support the recommendation of medical marijuana um, for a specific disorder. Now, why is that, given we have this seemingly um, uh, over, uh, overemphasis on medical marijuana and everybody's approving it and you know, it never gets shot down anymore, et cetera, and the majority of people think it's well, where we should go. Well, what happens is these are the challenges in the data. And if you're data-driven like I am, I'm a scientist, um, Cannabis has been studied as an illicit drug, not as a medicine. There's very little research just to start on this medical use stuff. So it's certainly anything is possible and it certainly has some medical possibilities, but there's not much data. Now what's been studied, and this is kind of the important piece I think for everybody to take home, is can cannabinoids more so than cannabis have been studied. So rarely do they test a smoked plant to see if it helps in a certain condition. Most of the studies are taking a single compound, either an oral form or, or whatever, or smoke form. They're not testing cannabis or marijuana as we all think about it. We'll get back to that more. So there's very even less research on, on the, the plant itself rather than cannabinoids. Um, the plant is highly variable. Variable. So when you do test the plant, you're testing multiple different things. So if it doesn't say exactly what percent THC, what percent of other compounds, what strain it is, et cetera, you're not really sure what you're testing. Um, and so we desperately need education for patients and healthcare providers to kind of get a handle on this because it's moving forward whether we like it or not. People are going to come to your office and want this and want to talk about it, and you need to figure out how do you talk about it. Um, and Unfortunately, right now, you'll see if you read some of these things, it's, it's an interesting conversation to have. Lots of gray areas. Um, so we need lots more data. As an example, I picked out one disorder because I think it's probably most relevant to the pediatric community is this idea of using cannabis to treat epilepsy. Severe chronic epilepsy that seems to be retract. Um, not easily treated with other medications, et cetera. And I've had some friends that called me up from California and asked me about their seven-year-old who just can, they cannot get her seizures under control and they're wondering whether or not to use cannabis. And boy, it's, a, it's, heart, it's heartbreaking and hard to know what to say, et cetera. But here's the literature in a nutshell, right here, what we know about seizures in epilepsy and marijuana. There's some animal studies. And the animal studies even have some positive and negative findings. Then there's clinical survey studies of humans, where 16 to 20% of patients with epilepsy smoke marijuana or smoke cannabis. Some say it helps, some say it doesn't. As far as randomized controlled trials and controlled studies, there's been a total of 48 patients in what are, quote, controlled studies. 
And there's even a Cochrane review out there that makes you think that there's lots of data, but there's really not much controlled data. Um, there's only 48 patients in a couple different studies total. And the interesting piece is this one here, which is, again, a take-home piece. The only thing they've assessed in these controlled trials is cannabidiol. That's one compound. We'll talk about it more in a little bit. But that's one compound in the cannabis plant, and it's not the one that gets you high. It's not THC. It's this, I hate to call it inert because it's not inert, but it does not get you high, and we'll talk more about it in a minute. But nobody's in a controlled trial tested the cannabis plant. Um, and so what you're recommending most of the time, we're talk, people are talking about is having their kids use the plant, which has the THC in it, which is probably um, the negative or the, most, the thing with the most adver potential for adverse effects in the plant. Okay, so anyway, the couple studies, one shows a reduction in seizure frequency in two of the studies, and the other study has no effect. So out of 48 patients, however you divide it up, there's a little bit of, you know, so it, it's certainly worth looking into. It's worth looking into specific compounds, and that's probably the take-home message, specific compounds, and usually not THC, which means it's not really cannabis or medical marijuana that everybody wants is high-potency THC. That's not usually where the medical indication is coming from. It typically might be coming from cannabidiol, but that's an, that's an overgeneralization, but that's the thing you have to look out for. So um, a colleague of mine said in Savage, she did a survey of the New Hampshire Medical Society on a clinical cannabis survey, um, she sent this out to I think four thousand, approximately three to four thousand providers, docs and nurses. Um, she got back. Uh, she cut the slide. She got back. Um, hmm, I want to say about six hundred, about six hundred responses. So about a 10, 13 percent um, response rate. And this is just this slide is simply saying, how would you rate your knowledge of cannabis effects? And you can see on this end is the people with basically they feel like they have no knowledge or very little. 60, 130, that's 190. That's almost half of those surveyed have very, very little bits of information. Um, this is a moderate amount of information. The people that they feel they know a lot, the great minority. And I would probably bet they don't really know that much. <laughs> but anyway, you can see there's a desperate need for, for the, our healthcare providers to come up to speed and feel comfortable with this because it's here to stay for at least a while and we need to know how to talk about it. I sent you, this is a link to the survey with all the different responses, et cetera. It's kind of actually fascinating what people think versus the data. Um, and so you can pull it up pretty easily if you want. Okay, um, another suggested reading. I'm going to have these up here periodically because as I was preparing, I came across some really cool new studies that I think would be excellent um, um, resources for me and for you. So this is one that um, John Knight's groups put out, and this is directly um, applicable to pediatrics and its developmental and behavioral pediatric practice implications. Um, and what he does, with, I think it's a she actually, the first author, um, what she does here is go over not just medical marijuana for pediatrics, but also the impact of marijuana in pediatrics and youth. Um, so it's a, it's a nice review. It's well done. I guess I think it's nice because I agree with how they present things. But anyway, it's worth, it's worth taking a look at. Okay, I don't have time to get into this today, but recreational marijuana laws, there's not many yet. There's really only two operating, really fully operating states to some degree. Um, the rules and the regulations are very different than medical marijuana. They're more restrictive, not less restrictive, which is a little bit weird. And so most people in these states right now 
don't even want recreational marijuana. They want to go get their medical marijuana approval because it's cheaper, it's better, and there's less, uh, less restrictions and less severe penalties if you get caught. So something's backwards, but they'll eventually work this out. But um, what I wonder and what I think maybe you should think about a little bit, sometimes I think, um, is it better or more appropriate to alternative to have recreational marijuana legalized or medical marijuana or both? Um, my impression now, just so you know, I've been thinking very strongly, if you're going to legalize this stuff, do it for, quote, recreational like alcohol, alcohol is because medically it just sends a message that somehow it's medicine and that's a little a little crazy given what we know currently and it puts it in a whole nother um category when you're trying to figure out what to how to talk about it prevention wise most of the other illicit drugs we don't have too many medical indications we do have for the op prescription opiates and stuff but marijuana it's a tough one so anyway something to think about um all right so the changing world what does this bring? There's potential positives, there's potential negatives. I've listed a few here. Um, there's these higher potency products, new, new products, new delivery systems that are gonna be created to meet the market needs. There's gonna be an impact on use and attitudes and perceived risk, and that's very important. Um, so there's some impact on, health, on um, public health and safety. Could be negative, could be positive. Um, there's gonna be an impact on addiction and problematic use. I don't think it's gonna be a positive impact. Um, and what it's going to do for science is, is a good thing. It's going to increase our understanding of cannabis quite a bit. And that's my next slide. I always think this is a good one. The impact on addiction science, which is my field, is it's a jackpot. I mean, this is the place to be if you're looking for funding and new ideas and things to learn about and helping form policy. There's so many things we need to learn if this is going to become a regulated substance in our in our communities, to do it right, you need to get a handle on all these things. And that's a lot of work. We're still doing that for tobacco and somewhat for alcohol after all these years. And the FDA just put out these huge grants, multiple center grants, to try to get an idea what to do about the nicotine content in cigarettes. Now, how long have we been talking about that? And so the same thing's going to need to happen here as we move forward. The problem is what I just said. Science is very slow moves very slowly, the reporting slow, et cetera. The media jumps on it pretty quickly. Um, so somehow we need to do things now, but we don't have the science now. So that's quite a quandary. All right, that's it, that's it on the, the medical marijuana legalization kind of um, issues. What I thought I'd do now is move quickly into a little, tell you a little bit more about some, a, a few specific issues like potency, uh, methods of administration, and then some impact on youth, youth consequences, and try to give you what's real, what's not, in that perspective. Um, all right, potency. I showed you this before, but the thing to pay attention to here first is the name. This is the Romulan variety. For Star Trek fans, they're like a, a species from another planet. They're the bad guys, actually. I don't, I don't think they may eventually turn into good guys, but the Romulans aren't, aren't good. Um, anyway, so what you have is you have platinum Romulan which is 21% THC and 0.4% cannabidiol. Then you have, I guess, the regular Romulan, which is 20.8 and 0.1. Then you have Romulan GH, and I don't really know what GH is for, but um, it's a little bit less percent THC and some moderate amount of cannabidiol. So they market this stuff with the idea that you know what you're going after, what percent you want, what mixture of cannabidiol you want. The problem is, 
one, they're not accurately labeled like we talked about before. And two, we have no idea. Um, other than higher percent THC gets you higher. Um, that's about what we know. And people usually are looking to get high with the least amount if possible. Although some people are looking for lower, lower strains because they don't want to get so high. But anyway, that's the whole, the whole how it all works. We know pot potency or dose matters from behavioral pharmacology, clinical pharmacology. We got to get a grip on this. We know it makes a difference. Um, with cannabis, and I've mentioned this, so we'll go through quickly. It's not all about just THC. Most of us have heard about THC, and that's the active ingredient. It is definitely the active ingredient. But when you start talking about, quote, medical purposes um, or even recreational purposes, and you start to decide what's going to be okay to have in a product, if you're going to regulate it, you got to look at the other, other things like cannabidiol that are in the product. The problem with our research to date is almost all our laboratory research, except maybe one, maybe two studies now, have been down around 2 to 4 to 6% THC. Recently, there's an 8% THC study that showed up in the, in the literature. There's a couple 6% ones. What's being confiscated on the street on average is 13% THC. And what's in all these dispensaries is more like on average 24% THC. So the products that are being sold in our dispensaries are like four to six times higher potency of THC than we've ever tested in the labs. Um, so we don't really know much about that. I mean, we know some basics. I don't mean we don't know anything. We know how THC works and the high effects. And people do titrate their use and smoke less of a higher, higher potency THC. But it's a whole different product out there. Um, and we know nothing about it. In the same regard, all these epidemiological studies we have that we base our um, knowledge on, people's um, IQ changes over time or goes down, and here's the uh, negative effects on memory in people, and here's the effects on relationships. That, again, is all based on people smoking the lower percent THC over the last 40 years. Um, it's only recently that this higher potency THC is really on the market and more common. So our current knowledge base isn't great. It may be right on. The high dose may somehow not make too much difference in a lot of areas, but it's quite possible it does. <clears throat> Unlike alcohol, we have no norms on standard doses or how much THC till you're intoxicated to the level that you shouldn't drive, what's the safe level. We know nothing about any of that. And there's also these different ways to do marijuana, smoke, vape, eat. Alcohol, mostly we just drink. Um, you could eat alcohol, I guess, but we don't currently. Um, you could mainline it too. All right, cannabidiol. I keep mentioning this, um, mentioning this, and it's an important one, specifically for physicians, because this is this is the the compound other than THC that people are putting their fingers on to say it might be the therapeutic compound in cannabis, and it and it just may, um, but we don't know much. So pretty much, some people call it an inverse inverse agonist, or kind of an antagonist, but the people I trust say it doesn't really operate that way. Um, so for some degree, for to some extent, we don't really know what the heck it does in there. The suggestive data that's most popular is that it has potential as an anxiolytic, potential as an antipsychotic. It's marketed as a medication for multiple problems. In Canada, in Canada you can get this product called Sativex, which is 50% THC and 50% cannabidiol. It's an inhaler, um, and it's marketed to um, treat MS, and other types of muscle spasticity. There's some trials on it. Looks like they're pretty good. Um, and it's also now being cannabidiol is being tested to treat um, other types of substance use disorders in the in the pharmacology literature. 
What's amazing is every time I start thinking about this and look to the literature, the literature is so old and so poor, it's ridiculous. Um, and most of it's in the animal lab. Most recently now, they're starting to make the product cannabidiol more available. We'll start to see a lot more data on it coming out. Recently, a group of, um, of, of good behavioral pharmacologists did a multi-site study testing cannabidiol in cannabis users, so experienced cannabis users. And in the regular pharm behavioral pharmacology lab, not testing um, with specific types of people for anxiety disorders, et cetera, but if you give cannabidiol to cannabis users, it seems almost inert. Subjective effects, et cetera, they don't really even realize what they're getting. It's not doing anything one way or the other. That doesn't mean for non-cannabis users or anxious patients or psychotic people, it might not do something very different. But um, we need to wait on this cannabidiol stuff. Problem is we're not. It's being marketed right now as, as the, almost like um, people think it's marijuana. <laughs> so it's being marketed, again, uh, just by itself, pure compound in a vaping device, in pill form, et cetera, as a treatment for specific disorders or just to make you feel good generally. Um, but basically, we know nothing about cannabidiol yet. So here's a quiz for you. You should get this one right. But all right, this is I ran across this just yesterday and added this in because I thought it was there's a Medscape article that was talking about an ongoing study where cannabidiol is being used for children with epilepsy. So there's an ongoing active clinical trial, which is great. Um, here's how it's reported. And what you need to know and it's supposed to come out of this grand rounds with is what's wrong with that sentence? I heard somebody say the right answer, I think. Yeah, so what it says here, right. So the US, the FDA has given approval for studies to begin on a medical form of marijuana. It's not a medical form of marijuana, it's cannabidiol. And that's where all the confusion in the world comes. And so whenever all the, when normal and everybody else says there's all this data on medical marijuana, half the time if there's a laboratory study, it just has cannabidiol or oral THC. It's not marijuana plant, it's not the cannabis plant, it's some compound. So again, a take home message. Question? Um, well, just have to clarify, we're doing two studies on medical marijuana in children with epilepsy here, and it's a whole plant extract mm -hmm. with a strain of the plant that is developed to have a high cannabidiol percentage and very low THC. Right. So it actually, in fact, is from the plant that they're getting. Well, your study is. This study... The only study that's approved by the FDA in the United States. Oh, well, no. Well, so, okay. so then, then the problem with this report, this was 2013, and um, this is how it's reported exactly. Pure cannabidiol is being given as a medical form of marijuana. So you may be correct in the, the reporting is completely wrong, but one way or the other, it's wrong. And if you're giving cannabidiol, you want to say you're giving cannabidiol and not the plant. If you're giving the plant that has a certain ratio, which sounds great, um, that's the kind of research we need, then it should be reported that way. And then all the confusion goes away and we start to can make, can make heads or tails of our findings. So I would... I appreciate, I appreciate the input. Because the DEA has anything from marijuana, derived from marijuana plants. No, I understand that. That's, that's like a whole other issue, though. I'm just talking about if you're trying to figure out medically what's going on with what compound. I know all the, all the craziness out there, the wording is nuts. But if you're trying to figure out as a physician whether marijuana, cannabidiol, some combination is working, you've got to get your words right. You've got to get it accurate. And usually it's not reported accurately. All right, 
So potency, the summary on potency, cannabis is not just THC. We need data on higher potency THC. We need data on cannabidiol and combination products. There's probably going to be other cannabis combination products coming down the road that we need to be worried about. We need more data on synthetic cannabinoids. Right now, they're not even really in the discussion other than they're, they're bad, but I'm not sure why they wouldn't be candidates for medical use. Um, synthetic means they're playing around with the compounds. So, um, but anyway, um, and the next thing I want to get to, but very quickly, is methods. I'm going to fly through this. Um, with all this change comes the new methods, and I've talked about vaping and eating and all the different products. How you do a drug makes a difference. We know that, again, from laboratory studies very clearly. It changes the onset of the effects, the time course of the effects, um, and perhaps the magnitude and adverse effects. If you're not aware about of vaping, although we have, I think, three or four vaping shops now in our area with our large sensors, it's pretty amazing. I don't know how they stay in business. But anyway, if you, if you Google vape, you'll see all kinds of articles, different things, some supporting vaping, some thinking it's nuts, um, comparisons, etc. So you could learn all about it because your kids will be talking to you about vaping um, if they haven't already. What is vaping? Here's the quick definition. Hopefully everybody's kind of aware. It's vaporizing, so you're basically taking the plant and you're heating it to the level before it's, before it's combustible. But it still it comes into an aerosol and you get the active compound plus the aerosol and you inhale it. So what you eliminate is the combustible smoke that has the toxins, the carcinogenic toxins in it. So in that sense, it's safer for your, for your lungs. Um, it has a respiratory benefit compared to smoking. So that's the, uh, the rage about vaping. Um, why is vaping important? With lots of knowns and unknowns with vaping benefits. It can have a harm reduction for respiratory factors. It can facilitate the use of cannabis for medical purposes. It's a cleaner way to deliver it. You can probably end up titrating it better with a vaporizer than trying to smoke it in the traditional way and eliminate the smoke. Um, the concerns is we don't know much about long-term and chronic vaping. If you vape 8,000 times in your life or 100,000, is that good or bad for you in the long run? Who knows? Um, the concern that, that we've voiced a little bit is um, it may have a positive impact on cannabis initiation, problem development, and maintenance. Why is that? Why are we a little bit worried about that? Well, the, the positive aspects that some people that vape talk about are that it's better tasting, it produces a more efficient high, you have more discrete use because there's not the smoke and you don't have to light it. Um, it's combined with, it can be combined with flavors or with nicotine. There's attractive packaging, marketing it. It's part of an evolving vaping culture and it's perceived as safer. So if something's perceived as safer, it's more likely somebody might try it. That's kind of a, a known. So anyway, we wrote a, a commentary on this and you can read it if you want in addiction, et cetera. So there's some concern about vaping. It's moving very quickly. Um, my team, my postdoc and um, graduate student, both in the audience, um, conducted a Facebook survey to try to get a handle on what's going on with vaping in the world. And we uh, very quickly and cheaply got 3,000 marijuana users across the country in pretty equal proportions across states um, to tell us about their vaping. And we found about 60% of marijuana users said they vaped at least once in their lifetime. They tended to start vaping after they started smoking because basically it hasn't been around for as long. It's long and short of that. The people that are vaping are more likely to be the, the frequent marijuana users, um, more so than the, the less frequent marijuana users. The reasons they gave for vaping were the same ones that people talk about in the, in the earlier literature, or at least in the common press. I also added it's cool, 
but we didn't actually ask if it's cool, I don't think, but we should sometime, because I think it is right now, quote, cool. Um, this is, gets to the frequency. Um, what this is the frequency of how, much they sm how often they smoke and how often they vape. The blue bars show that the, of this whole sample, the 3,000 people, um, about 30 to 40% smoke almost daily, but less than 5% vape daily. So vaping is always is a lower level in terms of the frequency. So it hasn't kind of taken over completely substituted or anything. We think in some people it's more commonly a dual use thing. You're vaping and smoking. For some people it may be cutting down their smoking a little bit, which is probably a good thing for their lungs, et cetera. But it also has the concerns we had talked about before. One other thing about um, vaping that I wanted to mention, this is more pediat a pediatric sample. This just came out this week or last week. Um, this is a survey from five high schools in Connecticut, about 4,000 kids, and it shows what percent of them are e-cig users and cannabis users. And of those that are e-cig and cannabis users, how many use cannabis in an e-cig or vaping pen? It looks like about 18 to 20 percent, about 5 percent total have used um, e-cigs to vape. What's not clear here is there's this thing about e-cigs versus vaping. Using e-cigs to vape cannabis means you have to turn it into a liquid and put it in the e-cig itself versus vaping pens where you can use some oils or plant materials, et cetera. I'm not sure they got a great accurate differentiation here, but that's the percent of kids that are doing some of this stuff, at least in Connecticut. We're about to hopefully launch a pediatric Facebook survey to get a better um, representational sample from the U.S. All right, um, I've already talked about these. Vaping is, is interesting. I don't know what to make of it, but vaping is the new fad, and you're vaping all kinds of substances. Caffeine looks like it may be marketed in a vaping format pretty soon as well. Edibles, not much time to talk about edibles. Um, they've received a lot of press. These are just dark chocolate candy bars of all types um, that look good. I put this one up because my wife likes dark, dark chocolate. And last time I presented on this, she was in the audience. <laughs> All right, um, edibles, like any oral, oral ingestion of a drug, the onset's slower, you eventually get similar effects. There's some overdose concerns with edibles um, because of the slow onset, people take more thinking they're not getting an effect, and that's happened a bunch out in Colorado, et cetera. Um, but it does increase access and ease of use. It's discreet, has a reinforcing taste, plus a, a good drug effect. Um, the concern with edibles, Mainly, it's like, why do we need all these cannabis edible products? Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> for it to be medicine, why we need to package it in ways that it's so attractive to youth and people and they're like, more likely to eat it in chocolate, et cetera, it doesn't make sense as a medical um, drug. I'm going to leave it at that. But we need a lot of work in the edible area with child protective packaging so they don't inadvertently get um, THC-laced um, goodies. This is a, a, um, a comment I'd like to put up, and this is by um, Bob McCoon from um, Berkeley. He's been a marijuana policy expert forever. And what he likes to say is the unfortunate aspect of this cannabis arms race is that they're finally turning the drug into everything the U.S. government once said it was. It used to, it used to be that we could say the government was exaggerating things, the threat of this crazy weed, but these new potent strains and I added and methods of use belie that. So it's possible marijuana now is becoming more problematic than ever and it's getting closer to what people that exaggerated the effects for, before were talking about. Um, but that's a long conversation in itself. Okay, kids. 
Here's what we're worried about with kids. This whole movement is changing their perception of the risk of marijuana. And what we know is when people's risk of a drug goes down, their use goes up. Simple as that. And this is just a, over from the year 1975 to 2013 that shows you that they, they parallel each other, mirror each other. Here are the traditional concerns about youth and marijuana, and you've all seen this, I'm sure. There's nothing new on this page. Poor academic performance, brain development, risk of accidents. Most of these are definitely associations. You can't argue that they're not associated with cannabis use and increased cannabis, increasing rates of cannabis use. Um, what you have a hard time with is causality. Causality has always, always been hard to show the pre-existing factors. It could just be delinquency. It could be um, something else. But either addictive disorders, you can't really argue about that in causality. But other than that, these are the things that people that smoke, kids that smoke more marijuana have increasing rates of these type of problems. All right. So how much of that is going on? Um, here's the percent of cannabis use um, across the United States for 12 through 17-year-olds. They always report it as 12 to 17, but... It kind of doesn't capture any age group very well because this is what they report. But the 17-year-olds, it's about 30%. The 12-year-olds, it's a very small percent. And if you look at cannabis use disorders, um, same kind of thing. As you go up in age, uh, the percent of cannabis use disorders goes up and starts to come down after age 18. Um, this is interesting because the, this shows you the conditional probability, the probability of developing a cannabis use disorder in this age range. So the blue bars are the prevalence, the percent of kids that this age range that, that smoke, and this is the percent that develop a problem, 12 to 17-year-olds. It's a almost 25% that smoke have a problem. Um, 18 to 25-year-olds, less so, and older people, even less so. So what I, how do you define a cannabis use disorder? That's a long, I can give you a long answer, but pretty much there's survey questions that get at kind of the DSM abuse and, and dependence questions, they don't do a perfect job of it, but it gives you an indication that there's some problem going on. So it's not a great, it's not a perfect diagnostic indicator in these surveys, but it's, it's a pretty good proxy, I think. This is to demonstrate that this, this relationship varies across ethnic and racial groups. I always think that this is going to be an issue and that what you see here is in black and Native Americans, there's a higher probability of problems um, developed among the users. And I think disadvantaged and underserved populations can least afford to have increases in marijuana use um, and legalization, although it's designed to some degree to reduce arrests of disadvantaged folks and African-Americans in, in particular. It could inadvertently do this, which has caused more problems by increasing use. So it's a, a give and take. So these are the epidemiology take-homes for kids. I think I've mentioned all those. Um, we need to do a better job in surveys of starting to talk about what type and how much people are using and what types of drugs and what that kind of thing, rather than just uses cannabis a certain number of days. This is to show you health service-wise. Kids that attend substance use treatment, the number one drug is still cannabis. That is the primary drug of concern. That's It's been that way for a long time. This is to demonstrate that these are the cannabis um, referrals and the open circles are non-criminal justice referrals and closed circles are criminal justice referrals. So about half are, are criminal justice and half aren't and the trend is that those are not criminal justice referrals are going up. So this legalization at least so far doesn't have some direct impact on um, the criminal justice. We're going to get just as, I guess the long and the short of it is this is that youth health services are taking up 
a lot of it's taken up by cannabis use um, as a primary, primary agent. And legalization will not likely reduce this, and it may potentially increase it. We're going to run out of time. All right, so mental illness. There's a lot to say here, too. <laughs> and these are all controversial. But um, the, the idea is, does cannabis or overuse of cannabis or so much, some amount of use of cannabis contributed to these disorders? And the answer, um, this is a study I'd like to throw up just briefly, because this is a, a, launch, a study done in London where they try to tie cannabis use to, to um, first episode psychosis. And what they show is the people that are using high potency cannabis frequently have the highest odds ratios of having initial first episode psychosis. And so the idea is they're trying to isolate what is it about cannabis that might be um, related to psychosis, and they're thinking it might be frequent use of high potency. The thing to note, though, which is weird, and I really don't know what to make of this, is that low, um, no matter what level of use you're using of lower level cannabis, there's no increased risk of, can of uh, psychosis, and it's even slightly lower, or not significantly so. And this isn't like dirt weed. This is fairly potent cannabis. It's just not as potent as this. So I still don't know what to make of this literature, but it makes you worry a little bit about high potency um, increase in the onset of psychosis. Um, this is a suggested reading. If you really want to get a handle on this issue, which a lot of us want to, this is a new paper that just came out. Two very excellent researchers in this area, a reasonable pro and con um, debate on this issue, or really with the facts included. I strongly suggest this one. <coughs> this, this and this, there's two of these. These are both slides from a longitudinal survey in Australia that shows you what rates of cannabis use when people are adolescents, 20-year-olds, and 24-year-olds, and whether or not they have depression at age 29, risk of depression at age 29. And what you see generally is in adolescents, it's only the very frequent users have increased risk at age 29. At 20 years, we can't tell the difference. Um, and at 24 years, cannabis use is related to depression five years later. It's even more so with anxiety, and I won't take time to um, show you this. What I think the main take home of that in the psychosis part is all right here is that cannabis use is associated with increased levels of mental illness. Proving the causality is still not there um, and may never be there. Um, but what's certainly not true is we don't have any evidence yet for, for the supporting the use of cannabis to treat any type of mental illness. There's just none there. The data did not support it. Um, it could be it's true in the long run. It could be some component of cannabis is there, but right now the data aren't there. And here again are some suggestive readings. I'm going to skip my least favorite topic, um, which is the brain. Because <laughs> um, everybody's interested in the brain, and I am too, but I'm not a brain researcher. But NIDA is, is obsessed with brain and brain brain studies, and we may be part of a big brain study here at Dartmouth eventually, but the long and the short of it is, look, cannabis is not doing anything good for the brain. And it, in kids, an early initiation of cannabis use seems to have more of a negative impact on brain development, et cetera. Um, and I'm going to skip prevention because we're going to do that some other day. But prevention messages are very difficult. They're being made more difficult by legalization. But I think in the long run, once we work through all this, and maybe it is regulated and, quote, legal, um, 
this will be the silver lining, which is all this change is bringing about a lot of thought and a lot of work and a lot of good science. And eventually we're going to figure it out this time around, I think. I don't think 50 years from now we'll have to do it again. We might still be working on it, but hopefully it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a continuous level of work that continues to make strides. Um, and in the end, we have, may have more rational policy and regulation. One can only hope. Um, I'm going to stop and have some time for questions here, but take-home messages. Things are changing. It's important to be on top of it. I think in here you'll find, from what I said, maybe make a little bit of sense of what I said, but there's some references in there I think you really could read very quickly that are bringing you up to speed. Um, we need science and we need good common sense as well. And that's hard to come by in our world. Um, but for you, I think in edu educating yourself through traditional means, which means reading the scientific literature, is still your best route of trying to figure out what's real and what's not real. And here's folks to thank. Thank you for your time and attention. And if we have time, I'll take a few questions. So with the legalization in Washington and Colorado, is there any move to start collecting data with any registries or anything like that? Because I know there's one study that came out that was very small numbers that showed that they didn't see an increase in pediatric use, but that their conclusion was that the pediatric use had been so high already yeah. that it had access through illegal Yeah, they're doing some of that. How good it is, I'm not sure, but all... A few of the states are trying to do a good job of that, and I just putting out announcements to try to get people to study that carefully. Right now, I can't make heads or tails of the data that comes out. I've seen that report. I've seen the opposite report. I'm not sure which one to trust. I'm not a great epidemiologist, so I can't really criticize the studies too well with a critical eye, but um, it's hard to tell, and it's too early to tell yet, I think. And the laws change every six months. They put in a little new regulation. They're trying to figure out what's the best way to, to regulate it. So it's a moving target which makes it difficult. And I'd like to just highlight another important aspect of pediatric marijuana, and that is that it, has, it starts in utero. Um, there's a, a perception that smoking marijuana during pregnancy is okay, um, as opposed to alcohol, where at least everyone, even if they abuse it, know that it's labeled on all the bottles that it's unsafe to use during pregnancy. But the perception out there is that it's okay to use marijuana during pregnancy and with breastfeeding. And the reality is there's not a lot of research, but all the research goes in the direction that it's not safe to use and has harmful effects. Right. So I just would like you to maybe comment on that aspect of yeah. the potential of if it's going to be legalized, we've at least got to get labeling and out there that it's not safe to use during pregnancy. Yeah, well, I completely agree with you. That is the state of the data. There's like a couple of longitudinal studies. They're not big ones, um, and they're very select samples that show that there's some outcomes. They don't seem to be right with the neonate, but they seem to be um, more like with six, eight, ten-year-olds when they followed them that long. Um, it will be interesting because when I've worked in a cocaine clinics and worked with high-risk OBGYNs, et cetera, and they had people that cocaine, smoke cigarettes, alcohol, and marijuana. Marijuana was always kind of left alone, and they weren't pushing to stop marijuana. Um, I think for certain, as it moves forward, it should get that, it'll get that label. The interesting thing is that marijuana 
the, the plant itself and who knows which components really actually does a good job with nausea. So for morning sickness, et cetera, I've heard reports where people will suggest trying some marijuana to help with morning sickness. I doubt if that's good. Um, again, very little data, but I think the data that's out there will support a warning label against that in pregnancy. Can only hope, I think. So as a parent of teenagers and as a pediatrician who does a lot of adolescent medicine, I'm having problems with my messaging. Um, when the last three presidents, while excluding Bill Clinton because he didn't actually inhale it, have admitted to using substances including marijuana, when there's going to be a dispensary down the road from <coughs> us, I understand opening up within the near future. <coughs> I'm very, like I said, I'm having a very yeah. hard time with my messaging um, of how to, because clearly Nancy Reagan's just say no policy didn't. Yeah, you know, there's been, and if you, you scour the net, et cetera, I can send you some ways where I think the messages are as good as they can get at the moment or the ways to go. Here's kind of a little quick laundry list, but the idea that, you know, if you take alcohol as your example, I mean, everybody drinks alcohol, but you still have a message to your kid. Some parents aren't very good with the message or very lax and some are strict, but the same will be of marijuana. You could continue to be smoking marijuana or smoked it as a youth and you could still have rules for your kids. I mean, no, it's not okay in my house and it's not going to be okay, et cetera. And you can have whatever rules you have. You know, parents have a tough time with that generally, um, with the drugs we already have with alcohol, cigarettes, et cetera. Um, so it's more almost getting better at the same rather than something different. <clears throat> what I think will be different is you're going to have to combat some of these messages that it's good for all the things that ails them, whether it's pain and uh, ADHD or all the disorders. There's all these things out there that cannabis is good for and it makes them feel better. And it probably does make them feel better because when you do drugs, you feel better, um, almost no matter what malady you have. So it's more with trying to figure out how to present the data in that regard is not the more difficult challenge. The more difficult challenge is, is the message to parents that the parents can then actually enforce and provide to their kid, which that's just, that's been a problem forever with, with alcohol. And I don't see marijuana as being any different. I think once it gets to the legal stage, perhaps, I think it'll be more clear because that's why I think recreational rather than medical will be a little easier. And that medical, you have to fight all the, oh, it's good for you, and blah, 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 versus it's just a drug, like a recreational drug, and for kids, it's not okay. And that's, I think, in a sense, my, my quick thoughts on that. I'll leave it with that as a take-home message. Thanks, Dr. Bundy, again. For